Good morning. Second Corinthians chapter seven. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our afflictions, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what, indi excuse me, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his, affection, and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use the word today. Lord, that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher, that what is communicated is from you about this passage. And Lord, apply it to our hearts. Lord, we are a hurting people. Lord, here we are, Lord, desiring to be that light on a hill. But it's also a target, Lord. So we ask for your protection. And Lord, I ask that you work in people's lives today. Certainly there are some people here that do not know you as Savior. Some that are claiming to know you, but they're just playing a game. 
Others that know you, that have drifted like so many that were there in Corinth, Lord, that, that Paul was reaching out to. Lord, draw them to yourself. Lord, give us a desire to walk close with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians 7, ministry on the front lines. Whether you know it or not, that's what this church has been for many years, serving on the front lines. That's different than trying to be a church that is well-received by everyone first. I mean, one missionary I heard had a little song that he sang, and the song was, well, we like to be liked, and we hate to be hated, at least we like to be appreciated, right? But the truth is, when you stand for truth, Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now, we don't have a persecution complex, but at the same time, we don't want to run from it. Why? Because we want to see people come to Christ. We want real ministry. We want to see real decision. Now, Paul, in chapter 5, toward the end, he said, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though Christ were begging through us, be reconciled to God. That's action. That's what he's doing here in verse 1. Verse 1, there comes a time for decision. The Christian life is just not osmosis. You grow up in a Christian home and eventually you're just kind of in. No, the decision that you make sometime in your life. Now, I'm not saying you have to remember the date, but you remember the story because it's a testimony of the Lord now. There are so many people that hide, and I've said it before. You ask for their testimonies, well, you're judging me? That's the feeling they have. Well, you think I'm a Christian? <laughs> now I don't. Because that story is not about you it's rejoicing about the power of God to reach down and save another sinner. Every one of those stories are precious. Paul said, therefore having these promises, what promises? The promise just before. Verse 18, I will welcome you, I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What an invitation. People are lonely today, you know that? With all the social media and all the things that you can be involved in, people are lonely. The only answer is a comforter in their life, the Holy Spirit. I personally don't know how people make it without the Lord. Because he's an ever-present help in time of trouble. He's right there. He's the first person we ought to be turning to when there's trouble, when you've been attacked, when you've been injured, when you feel alone. And the promise of Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd. He is leading me. The sovereign of God is called the safest doctrine because we believe that he is ever ruling, he knows everything, and he's right there in charge and in control. Nothing happens without his knowledge. So we can go to him, and we're not surprising him when we tell him where we're at. It's just confessing. Lord, you see where we're at? I see where I'm at here. 
Lord, you know where I'm at. And so he says, seeing that there's this opportunity, why would you struggle on alone when if you don't have Christ, there is that present danger that you can slip into eternity at every time, anytime, forever. It's real. Some people, well, you know, I've grown up in the church and I've always, people think I'm bad. Yeah. Just like they are. You see, the only people going to heaven, there's no good people going to heaven. Because Jesus said there's none good but one, and that's God. The only people going to heaven are the sinners that have admitted it and submitted to Christ. So you can fool everybody and pretend like everything's okay, but God knows. And your saving of face won't be worth much in eternity of hell, separated from God in eternal darkness. That's not worth it, friends. And you don't know when the end will come. So I'm a very careful driver. This last year, I don't know, I can't remember what the circumstance was, but you know, every once in a while, the highway gets closed, so they route traffic through town. And I was up there on the cross street, because I, I I'm sharp, I get around, so I went through the town instead of going on Grand and then Third, and I came up behind St. Matthew's, Episcopal Church, and uh, there's a stoplight there, so I waited, and it turned green. And I thought, all right. I started to go, and I caught some of the side of mine. Here comes a semi. He was going 40. He wanted out of town. It was like, oh. I went, whoa, that would have put a dent in my Toyota. You can't plan for that stuff. Dr. Bookman says he believes that every once in a while, guard the angels have to sit down and take a breath. Whew, that was close. James said, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. What is your life but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Why would you put off salvation for another day? He said already, today is the day of salvation. This is the only opportunity you have. Don't worry about saving face. Worry about, are you saved? That was Peter's last message to his beloved congregation, for, to his people. Make sure your election in Christ. Make sure if you don't have joy, if you don't desire fellowship, you don't care about worship, you're just going through the motions, something's wrong. He said two things. Either you've become short-sighted, you've lost focus because of sin, or you're not saved. He said there's reasons, two reasons basically, in the end of six and the beginning of seven, that you don't have a relationship right now with the Lord. It's worldly friendships, wrong relationships, and wrong actions on your part, sin. And I'm not going to go through a list of that because the Holy Spirit knows what they are, and he's telling you right now what it is. But what's holding you back? I talked to some people that really understand, and they say, well, hold it. It seems that if I trust Christ as my Savior, I've got to get up, give up control. That's right. You see, right now, you're fooling yourself. You have no control now either. You think you do. But the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you are the servant of sin. You are the children of disobedience. You do whatever Satan wants to when he wants you to. He just says it and you do it.
But Jesus has died to set you free from that. You don't have to sin anymore. And Paul is saying now is the time to deal with this sin. As a believer, sometimes you wander into sin. Now, I'm not saying you fall into it because we usually just make decisions to get there on purpose. We like that idea of fall because then it's like, oh, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Yeah, you do. You made a decision. You decided to be God of your life and rather than God be God of your life and you made a decision to take care of yourself and so you said, well, I don't really care. Now you're living out there and you remember what it's like to walk with the Lord, that peace, that security, that joy, but you're worried about, well, I can't keep myself there anyway, so why slide up and slide down? I'll just be miserable. He says here, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit and perfect in holiness God in our life. What is that? It's confession of sin and it's the process of sanctification in our life. Now, once and for all, positionally, you were set aside to belong to the Lord. But there's this walking with God As you draw near to him, he draws near to you. Well, I thought God had to cleanse us. That's right. But what is the process? See, if you're a believer, you've been set free from sin, so now you have the grace to be able to make decisions that please God. You can make decisions. So often we begin to use the excuses the world uses. Ray Comfort, you know, the the street evangelist, that's what I call him anyway. He's done a lot of work in apologetics and and uh, he goes around with uh, uh, Kurt Cameron, and they talk to people on the street. And they ask people a question like this. If somebody lies to you, what are they? Well, they're a liar. Well, if you tell a lie, what are you? Oh, I'm human. Hmm, interesting. Christians use the same excuse for anger, for immorality, for all the things that come into life, well, they look around and they say, well, guess I was born this way. I'm just human. Yeah, but see, now you're a believer. And him that knoweth to do right and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It's sin. So what is it I can do? It's the same thing you did to come to Christ. First John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, agree with God that it is sin. See, a lot of people never get to the root. And so they kind of blame God for not straightening them out. I don't know, Lord, why you made me this way. That's Adam. The woman you gave me, right? The woman. The snake did it. The old spiritual says, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Time for decision. Time for decision. Will you trust God and his word that he actually means what he says and then walk with him? People have made a decision when they were children and I am so fearful of this because I think most people are unsaved that were led in a prayer. Here, say these words. Now you're in. woo You forget, John... 112. 
Because following John 1, 12, as many as receive him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, which were born, not because your parents were, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, but of God, not the will of man. Nobody else can put you into the kingdom. So them giving you the magic words is probably just a curse on your soul. Oh, okay. Well, I don't want to go to hell. Say these words. But there was never a decision to submit before God and say, Lord, I want to follow you. Oh, be baptized? Oh, sure. And the, the thing that's more dangerous about that in children's lives than infant baptism is they remember it. Well, I was baptized. I said the prayer. But there was no conviction by God and response by you that your sin was altogether an offense to him and you were lost. And so you're holding on to that action that you did when the Bible says salvation is not of you, it's of God. How do you know? There's no joy, there's no desire. And you live a life of comparison. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, I'm, I'm probably as good as so-and-so. Rather than a personal relationship with Jesus and accountability to him. Paul goes on because that is our opportunity. That is our job our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom to be pointing that out in people's lives, that without Christ, you're lost. But you know what? That comes with the real burden of personal ministry. That's why some of you don't share the gospel. It's not that you don't want your friends to be saved. It's that you understand that it comes at a cost, that if you stand for Christ, people might not like you. Well, how, they, how would they like you when they remember that you were a believer and you never shared with them and now they're in hell? Will that be a fond remembrance? Listen, this is not about you. He said, but I don't know if I'm going to be convincing enough to share the simple gospel. That's the whole responsibility. But I think it's amazing that Paul in these verses 2 through 8 talks about his own personal burden and the stress and the tension of frontline ministry. Because sometimes you might look at somebody that is an evangelist or a pastor and think, well, it's just easy for them, no problem. No, no. Everybody that stands for Christ will suffer persecution. Everybody. So Paul kind of lays it out what it is. This is such an amazing look into his heart. He says, make room for me. I, did, I wasn't doing that condemn you. I was trying to save you. Make room for me. We haven't shut you out. He said, verse 5, I think this is the key verse for this passage. When we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. That's the real burden of a pastor. His priority is to preach the word. But what comes with preaching the word is this amazing, wonderful, hard burden of loving people and Paul put it this way when he wrote to Timothy. The minister of the Lord must be gentle. Peradventure, God may grant repentance to those that are living in opposition themselves. That many times preaching the gospel is, trying to, is like trying to help a wounded animal out of a trap. They will bite you. They don't understand that you're trying to help them until they're free. Paul says it's worth it. 
but it's still real, isn't it? It's still real. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Isn't that interesting? Ministry could wound Paul too. The apostle Paul, the man that turned the world upside down, had this burden and he hurt when people hurt. And he hurt when people tried to hurt him. It was real. He wasn't alone in that. Remember Jesus in John 6? People had showed up the next day just to get a free meal after he had fed the 5,000 with a miracle. And he pointed out in there, they're missing the point. He said, you know, you missed the fact there was a miracle being done. And they said, well, we just thought you were here to take care of us and feed us. And in the old days, God fed us the manner of heaven. Our father's the manner of heaven. He says, no, I'm the, I'm the man of heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. They said, oh, give us this bread. He began to teach them the doctrine of a substitutionary offering. And he said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you won't be part of me. And they went, oh. And they all went away. The crowd dispersed really quickly. Oh, he's not going to give us bread? No, no, he's talking about how somehow we got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And Jesus felt it. And he turns to his disciples and he said, are you going to go away too? Because he understood that narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Most people go that way. And so he turns to his disciples because he has submitted the use of his godly attributes. So he says, really, are you going to go away too? Can you see the burden of his heart? Paul understands this is a struggle for the life of this church and for the lives of individuals. False teachers have, have come in. Some have professed. You don't know if it's real until you see them come through a trial. And some of them have been pulled away. The burden is real. But he said, you know, I'm really not sorry because Titus came and he lifted us with a report that you people are getting your heart right. So I didn't want to make you feel bad, but I'm glad I did. People come to the pastor, but who? Whoa, did you get me today? My wife talking to you? No, that's the Holy Spirit. He said, but I'm glad. I'm glad you felt bad. So you were brought up short in your path that you might take a breath and think, Hold it, I'm on the wrong path. I need to change something. And then in the next two verses, 10 and 11, he describes true repentance. True repentance. Because there's true repentance, then there's the repentance of the world. There's two different things. He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Now, repentance is turning around. It's going the other way. Only God grants that. You may see a person in sin, so you bring them the truth. I don't care if they're a believer or non-believer. You can't talk them into repentance. You can't do it. If you do, that's you. 
Talk to a lot of people, say, oh, I wish I could just say these things to them. Yeah, me too. But the only person that's going to count is when the Holy Spirit says it to them. And then they have to make a decision. Remember that verse? First Timothy 2.27, it's God that grants repentance. Be gentle, give them the word, and then pray that God would open their eyes and their heart to receive it. That's the tension in the ministry. He said, I'm so thankful because he describes it in verse 10. He said, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. It is the same Greek word, repentance without repentance. See, because there are people that repent on the outside and you say, oh, right, they received Christ. And later you realize they turned back away from that and they're back in the world. You say, well, I think they got saved because they said the prayer. I think some of you are holding on to a false state. You're really saved now. But somebody led you in a prayer and you went right back into the world and then eventually you realize that you need to actually follow Christ. The invitation of salvation was now was not ask Jesus in your heart and then everything will be okay. That wasn't Jesus' invitation. Jesus' invitation was if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Come to the end of yourself. Understand there's no hope. Take up your cross and follow Christ. You understand at salvation that that is where you're going. That you're giving up your life to follow Christ. Jesus said that in Matthew 16, 24, that if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul, is that a good deal? You gain everything there is in the world, but you lose your own soul. But he said, if you give up the world, you'll gain your soul. You turn your back on everything and turn to Christ. That's salvation. That's repentance. And he said, when somebody really comes to Christ... It's not humiliation, it's humility. You see, worldly sorrow is when you get caught and you're like, oh, somebody help me. It's event management. Well, we gotta control this. Let's, okay, let's throw this out there. Yeah, I did that and this. If they buy that, then I can stop. It's humiliation, but you still have your pride. That's why you're humiliated. Humility, humility is a gift from God, and you say, hey, whew, let's just do whatever we got to do. Let's deal with this. Let's, let's just deal with it. Why? Because you realize now you don't have to protect your righteousness anymore. You don't have to manage the event because you say, Lord, whatever you want. Paul was knocked to the ground by God's light on the road to Damascus to kill some other Christians, and his response was, Jesus, what would you have me to do? That was his response. Lord, whatever you want. Talking to a good friend of mine recently, and uh, he got some counsel that was really kind of silly, but God had already dealt in his heart, and so he called me. I said, no, you don't have to do that. But the, the point is that his heart was, whatever it takes, I want to be cleansed of this. I, I don't, I want, whatever it takes. What does that mean? Pride is gone. Well, anybody find out? Let's not talk about this. That's the world. That's the world. Oh, you know, let's, let's not. Mm-hmm. Well, we, mm, you know. No, that's humiliation. You're afraid of humiliation. That's pride. That's not humility. 
promises, explanation. Oh, well, this is why. And you justify yourself. And you continue on in the path of death. For a believer, you don't lose your salvation. You just live in that loneliness. And you feel like nobody cares out there, but you won't submit. Because you've got to hold on to what you're in control of, and it's fear. And that means you don't trust God. You don't trust God to the keeping of your soul. You've got to manage it for him. And you're not going to have peace. That's not godly repentance. But in the last part of the chapter, verses 11 through 16, he talks about the joy of restoration. And verse 11, it's like he's going through the testimony again. He's bringing up these key words about everything that he'd experienced and that God had overcome. And you know what? The joy of a believer that's wandered away, repenting, is the same joy to the pastor as a sinner that gets saved. Because you still have the flesh and you still have to overcome it. Look at the words he uses. What earnestness, this very thing. And it's like, it's like he's, a, he's the coach of a prize fighter and they just won the fight. And they're going back over it again in their mind. And he was right there and, and they gave you a left and it charged you. But, and you wobbled on your feet and then you came back and boom, you gave him the uppercut. Right? He's going through all that. And God overcame. And we won. What earnestness this godly sorrow has produced in you. And Paul, being the pastor that has seen this happen over and over, goes, I knew it could happen. Yeah, I knew it. I knew we were going to win. But did he really know? Yeah, kind of. He knew what the power of God was available to do, but to actually see it, he's just overwhelmed. That's what's lifted him up again. Because pastors begin to look at people that are on the front lines is not where they are now, but what could God do with that guy? Whoa, yeah, but he's such an awful sinner. Yeah, but what a great sinner he is. Wow, God turned that around. What a great soldier of Christ that guy could be, right? You begin to see that potential in people. You don't look at people the way they are. You begin to see because you've seen before what God has done with amazing sinners, with his amazing grace, and that's what keeps you going. So Paul says, what earnestness is God he sorrows? What vindication of yourselves? I knew it was in you. What indignation. Oh, how you made everybody mad when you got your heart right, but you didn't care. You didn't care. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. They overcame. John wrote in his epistle, Second John, And he said, what an amazing blessing it is to hear that your children walk in righteousness. That means you're not there. You've raised them. They're on their own. And they make those decisions. My dad used to say, you won't tell your own parenting really until you see your grandchildren. Because they will, your children will pass on what they've actually taken in in their life. They may go to church out of habit because that's what they did, but they will pass on a faith that's real to them. An important one will get passed on. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender or the sake of the one offended, 
but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And then he just talks about, wow, I just can't tell enough people about this. I mean, I'm, I just, I just, because why? This was a tremendous, tremendous fight that he was in. And all Paul could do was pray. He wrote them letters, he gave them the truth, and then he had to step back and endure the patience and the affliction and the burden and the depression of waiting to see what God was going to do with God's seed. But James wrote, and he said, just like a farmer, put the seed in the ground, and the storms come, and the heat comes. But if you plant in righteousness, you're going to harvest in joy. Paul concludes, and he says, For if anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be truth. His affection abounds all the more towards you. He remembers the obedience of you all, how you receive with fear and trembling, and I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Say, but what if they repented and they really didn't repent? Well, who are you looking at? Are you looking at people that, you know, they got their heart right, but they're probably going to mess up again? Yeah, they are. But who are you focused on for the keeping of your soul? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Father, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. And you have given us this opportunity as ambassadors with powerful, powerful seed. But Lord, we carry it with an expectation you're going to bless it. And we desire to bring people at least to the place as though God were as Jesus were begging through us, be reconciled to God, that we bring to the people to the point of so what in our ministry. We bring the people to the point we can't make the decision for them, but we trust your word enough that we bring them to the place of decision and that we trust you to do the work. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.